Heart and Mind, the Bible study in the virtual church classroom of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and we are currently studying It's a Wonderful Life and a Bible study according to the precepts and uh, concepts that are in the movie. This is episode five. It's the final episode of this study, and uh, I'm Pastor Dan, joined by my daughter Bethany, and we are uh, happy to share this with you. I hope you're being blessed by it. Uh, there will be a bonus episode. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But for now, I want to jump right into our lesson. In, in uh, episode five, we're going to talk about George's wonderful gift that he received to see what the world was like without him in it. But before we do, as uh, as I was researching for this study and for my own enjoyment, I came across the book through uh, Amazon uh, Kindle Unlimited that uh, got my attention because it was free. <laughs> well, sort of. I got my Kindle Unlimited as a perk. But uh, uh, this book is it's called It's a Wonderful Life, the 70th Anniversary Celebration. And it's an in-depth look at the movie. And it really goes deep, and I have only begun to read it. I'm on chapter three. In chapter two, the author tells how the story originated. It was originally written by Philip Van Doren Stern as a short story called The Greatest Gift. Mm -hmm. And RKO had purchased the rights to the story a long time uh, prior to um, to uh, Capra getting a hold of it. And... Um, their writers just couldn't figure out what to do with it. And what's interesting is that the um, a, a number of different writers took a stab at it. And um, the um, uh, concept was there, but they just couldn't figure out how to contemporize it and to make a complete story screenplay out of it and so they just kind of trip tripled around with it and, and just didn't know what to do with it and um it's a it's an interesting story about how so many different writers tried their hand at it and it was actually frank capra who was um the one that uh, uh kind of brought the story full circle he he didn't write exactly but he kept telling the writers it needs this. It needs that. We need to, we need to take this. Uh, and and the original character uh, was his name was George, but it was uh, uh, oh, lost it here. But his name was not George Bailey. That came later. And in the story, a lot of what happens to George, he's it's just like dumb luck. And so there's no. In the original story, there's no real like contrast and comparison between good and evil, between the ambitions of George and his reality. And and uh, what's interesting is the author of this this 70th anniversary celebration says that you know, he believes that Capra, because he took time off from Hollywood to make movies for the army during World War Two. He, wrote, he he directed a whole series of movies called Why We Fight. And he was in the field and he was seeing the real uh, combat and the real ravages of war. And in those days, uh, people at home were sheltered from that as much as possible because, well, you know, how eager are you going to be to send your son off to war if you are clearly aware of his great potential for a violent, terrible death uh, as a victim of terrible weapons and, you know, all of it. So people don't need to know that. And, and that was the approach the War Department took with it. And so, but that didn't keep correspondents like uh, Ernie Pyle and some of these other famous correspondents from the era uh, from recording it. And the other thing that happened is um, Capra. He saw it. And so he, he inspired people with trying to tell a story of why we fight without going so far as to show, you know, how 
our violent response to the violence and evil of an enemy is justified. And, and so he didn't talk so much about the literal effects of war, but he talked a lot about the spirit of the thing and what, what motivated people. And what's really interesting is, is that that plays out in all of his movies. You, you can see that it's really about what's driving people. So when he came back and he saw the writers fooling around with his story, he, he said, we can do this, but we need to, we need to add some real humanity to the situation. And we need to speak to the reality that there's evil out there. There are people who just have sinister agendas and so forth. And, and that was really fascinating. Um, it sounds like that's probably also where Capricorn comes from. And it's not a bad thing at all. Not really. I, you know, I, you if know. he, because his movies, his movies explore those things, but also make you leave, you leave every sitting of his movies, or I, I do, feeling really good about people. Yeah. Even when there's dark, sinister characters, like, you know, not to totally go off on a spin off, spin away from what we're talking about, but like anytime you watch those, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is my, I love It's a Wonderful Life, but Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is my very favorite Capra movie. And it's the same thing. There are dark, sinister characters in it, but you leave that movie feeling really good about people. Right. And, and I don't think that there are, inauthentic i think Mm -hmm. that's why we identify with this movie because we can identify with george and Mm -hmm. the other characters and they're real and there's nothing phony or corny about them they're real people and unfortunately so are the evil ones that Mm -hmm. are in this and and uh anyway so to bring us back to today's um lesson we're going to open with a clip from the toll booth guardhouse um and I have a couple of little interesting things for you about that one. Um, number one, in the original screenplay, Clarence doesn't have a name. Um, he's called in and he is simply referred to as B-29. <laughs> which I think is funny because this is post-World mm-hmm. uh, War II yeah. by, by months. And the B-29 is the latest, most powerful, amazing. It's... It's what we think of now when we think of stealth fighters and all this kind of jazz. So the B-29 was a really sophisticated weapon of war that brought an end to the war mm-hmm. in Japan. At least that's that's how it went, you know, played out. But, but anyway, it's interesting that his original title was just B-29. Mm-hmm. But then it becomes Clarence. And um, the other thing I thought you'd find interesting, listeners and Bethany, is um, how... He, um, uh, how, how Capra had to deal with the censors. Um, censors were always there in the movies, and their job was to keep it decent and uh, keep it pro-America and all that kind of stuff. And there are a number of issues in the movie that the censors required some adjustment to. And they range from... Uh, suggestive language uh, uh, to uh, the idea that drunkenness is being portrayed that uh, uh, but here's this the scene we're about to watch is the one where Clarence and George are drying off in the guardhouse and the censors were concerned that Clarence and George were going to be portrayed as naked mm. since they were drying off and mm-hmm. presumably would have taken all their clothes off to dry their clothes and uh, to go back outside. And so the, the, the censors were very particular about that. They didn't want two men naked together <laughs> in this guardhouse. And so they, it was, it's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's the scene that we're about to look at. And it sets us in the direction that we want to go from here, which is, the wonderful gift that George received. So let's listen. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. It's 
suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. What'd you say? You've never been born. You don't exist. You haven't a care in the world. No worries, no obligations, no $8,000 to get, no potter looking for you with a sheriff. Say something else in that ear. Sure, you can hear out of it. What's well, a doggone thing? I haven't heard anything out of that ear since I was a kid. Must be that jump in that cold water. Your lips stop bleeding too, George. Happening. It stopped snowing out here, didn't it? Well, I, uh, what's happening here? What I need is a couple of good stiff drinks. How about you, Angel? You want a drink? <laughs> Come on, as soon as these clothes of ours are dry. The clothes are dry. I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And in that scene, we see that. George is about to see the world around him as if he'd never been born so that the that he can get a sense of how his life made a difference in all the other people's lives. So, you know, George's fundamental problem is, is that he doesn't think he's ever accomplished anything really useful or interesting in life. He He's stuck in the same work every day and it's so far from what he imagined his life to be like. Mm -hmm. And he believed that he had to make a difference, that in order to make a difference and to make an impact on the world, he had to do big things. And so he's completely discouraged at this point because not only has he kind of recognized that his life is not a particular um, success, he's also, you know, going to get thrown in jail for all his sacrifice and hard work. So um, what's really amazing is, is that this movie is affirming life mm -hmm. in, in the fullest sense. And, um, you know, I'm going to make a statement that might bother people who feel differently than I do about abortion, let's say. But the fact is that every life has value and every person who is born impacts the world. And when a child is not allowed to begin life because it's aborted in the womb, then that's a life that could have made a difference in, in the world and we'll never know. And, and I just feel sad about that. I think every life makes a difference. Some lives make more impact than others because they're lives that are dedicated to the uh, others in, in, a, in a good way, like George. And then there are people whose lives have impacted others, but negatively. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be George, or uh, George, I mean, George's nemesis, Mr. Potter. So, you know, and the Bible says, I formed you in the womb. You know, God knows you before you're born. Mm -hmm. God knows you the minute that that spark happens that makes a human being start to exist. And um, so the question is, and this is for everybody, but Bethany, you're the only one here, so you have to do an answer. If you had the opportunity to see what the world would be like, had you never been bored, would you do it? And if so, why? Um, I don't think I would. You wouldn't want to know what the world would be like if you hadn't been a part of it? No, because I think you have the potential to be disappointed, too. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. I mean, I don't know that that's the case for me. I hope it's not, but I don't know. I just... I, I like to read science fiction. Shocker. I talk about shows I watch all the time. Right. But I like I just read one that's really good that I really want you to read uh -huh. that that has a lot to do with time travel and things like that. And I just think that when you start I, I love this movie, but I think when you start messing with stuff like that, you're going to face more problems than not. And I'm not sure that I would want to know 
what a world without me and it is like because I like being in the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and and yet I would take the other approach, or at least I would say that it would be nice to know that you make a difference and it would be fun and I think rewarding to find a few examples of how you've made a difference in other people's lives. You know, um, my life and my career have been devoted to helping others Mm -hmm. and 99% of the time I never know how much help I was. I just don't. But I do think that you're afforded opportunities in life where you get to see your difference that you've made. And I think George does too. He just isn't recognizing it at this point in the movie. Because there are lots of times where his where his impact in his world is made known to him, but he doesn't necessarily recognize it. Yeah. So I think we do get those chances. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't always see them until maybe we look back. So why does George think that everybody would be better off if he had never been born? Because he's at his lowest of his low. I'm going to look at this clinically, sorry. All right. But it's not... I don't think there's any one pinpoint reason that he's thinking that. He's... He is... Has probably been... Spiraling a little bit for a little while. I don't think that because when he when he goes to Potter and is begging and all of this is happening that it's kind of out of character for him, mm-hmm. which makes me think that there's probably been some some build up toward this and we get to see some of the build up during the movie, but we also are left to imagine a lot because those kids at the end of the movie are you know the oldest one the first kid is probably 11 or 12 years old which means that there's stuff that's happened in a decade that we Mm -hmm. haven't necessarily seen all the way because we go from mary being pregnant to them having a whole passel of kids right so i think he's i just i think he's in the midst of a depressive episode and that Okay. That messes with your 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 body chemistry, your brain chemistry gets messed up when that's happening and I think that's what's going on. I don't, you know, he's he's feels like he's hit rock bottom and he's already feel been beaten down. All right. You so know? for the sake of discussion, even as he is saying this and before Clarence grants his wish, mm-hmm. Who's George failing to consider when he um, when he says the world would be better off if he hadn't been born? Well, anybody attached to him. That's this the thing when people are most most times when people are considering suicide as their only option they feel like it's their only option and that they don't have anybody to help them, but there's like, there's someone attached to most people. So George isn't, I mean, if you're asking who he's not considering, it's anybody that is attached to him. He takes care of his mom. He helps take care of uncle Billy. Cause uncle Billy can't remember anything. He has four kids yeah. and a wife and a brother and you know, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that that we could sum this up by saying then that um, George, in this moment of defeat and and uh, despair, is being more selfish than he's ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, because up to now in these episodes, we've talked about the selflessness of George mm-hmm. and the self-sacrificing that he does for the sake of others and. Uh, at this moment, he is so disappointed with what that has yielded for him and so sure that nobody really cared about anything he did mm-hmm. um, that he just has a selfish solution, which is to just check out and they can all figure out how to deal with this stuff without him, mm-hmm. you know, 
and presumably he figures the money problem will be resolved because he died and they collect the life insurance. Although most life insurance policies, even then, have uh, lines in there that basically say it's void if you commit suicide. Um, it has well, to be a natural death or and we were also, accidental death. When we were watching the watching the full film not that long ago, we were having a discussion about suicide as a crime. Right. And because they say it's, you know, it's, that comes up in the movie. As right. It's, it's against, it's the, against law. the law. And we were talking about, okay, well, if someone, if someone completes an act of suicide, then... Does that mean that who who's punishable by law? Does that mean their family suffers more yeah. because they did that? And and I don't know that we came to a solid decision on that when we were talking about it. But and you know, as 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 popular as this movie is in the general culture, um, I know from personal experience that that line right there and that brief dialogue um is probably very very troubling to um certain people when they watch it because they've been affected mm -hmm. personally by suicide mm -hmm. and as a pastor i've dealt with people who have been affected by suicide yeah and i've had to learn how to say you know what this person was sick and people die from sicknesses. And it would be better for us not to assume that this is something that God will punish. It is better for us to let God be the judge as only God can be. And we can, we can, uh, we can count on that. You know, we really can. We can count on that because God is gracious and, and just. Mm -hmm. So, um, what kind of questions do people typically ask when they're in the middle of a crisis? You know, what, why is this happening, Lord? Um, you know, what if what if God doesn't answer right away? You know, I'm in trouble and I need a, you know, I've just gotten a diagnosis and I'm scared and I don't want to die and I don't want my loved one to die. Mm -hmm. And Lord, I need an answer right now. And there is no answer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what do people do in those kind of situations? Um the book of Job gives us a few insights that are worth looking at right now. Job 3, 1, Job 3, verses 1 to 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. Hmm. And 11 to 12. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Uh, and chapter 16, verses 20 to 23. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. And then verse 25 and 26. Of 16? Yes. I'm confused. There is not. Well. <laughs> okay. It sure says that in it my notes. It goes to 22. <laughs> so, Job gets really close to cursing God. But he never does. Mm -hmm. What does he do instead? You know the story. Based on the verses we just read, or because in the verses he he he's thankful for an intercessor, right? And then verses eleven or twelve, kind of eleven and twelve, kind of hinted that right. They he he's cursed the day he was born. But then mm -hmm. he begins to change because he, he talks about, if not for the intercessor. Right. Yeah. In chapter 16, he talks about having, uh, he's thankful for his intercessor. His right. And, and so how are George and Job alike at this point? 
you know, they, they've both had a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. They've both been recognized as upright, good people. And in the moment of crisis, and Job's crisis far exceeds George's or anyone mm -hmm. else's, um, at their moment of crisis, they admit that, you know, if this is what it all comes to, then it would have been better if I was never born. Yeah. You know, and what's the point of living if this is how it ends, especially if you've done your best to live a good life? Mm -hmm. And um, so Job 42.12 is the story of, is, is the part that describes where the transformation begins to mm -hmm. start in Job's life. This and is. it's meant to give us hope, I think. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yokes of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Yeah. Um, here's how I've often played with the idea of the wonderful life story is after all that was over and the singing was done and the people went back home and Eustace is done counting, they find out they've got about $20,000 there, let's say. And that more than covers the 8000 and which, by the way, the book I was telling you about earlier said that the censors never said anything about the fact that Mr. Potter stole the money. <laughs> they were trying to avoid any... They, they didn't want this, for whatever reason, the censor that was appointed to this, and it's like a guy named Reed who was sort of famous or infamous in those days mm -hmm. for his strictness. He, he had concerns about other potentially criminal behavior or uncouth mm -hmm. or whatever. And yet he never says anything about Potter stealing the money. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to believe whatsoever that Potter ever gave the money back or admitted mm -hmm. that he took it. Mm -hmm. He just put it in his bank account and said, you know, snooze you lose and the chump sure got lucky and you know we'd like to think that potter learns his lesson from this experience but it's highly unlikely and it's far more likely that he stayed as rotten as ever and that he just went to his grave being one of two people who knew he, that he stole that money and and uh what's interesting is is now george is not only able to take care of the matter of the $8,000, but he has a surplus of money. And there are people in that group who gave to him who understood very clearly that he had loaned his personal money to them. So there's at least two thousand more than one occasion. Yeah. So there's at least $2,000 that he can say, well, that's mine and I just got it paid back. But chances are that's only scratching the surface of the many, many generous things he did. Well, and I also think about, um, because they get a tel a telegram or a phone call from Sam. Right. And Sam says that he's authorized his bank to wire up to $20,000, I yeah. believe, to George. Which I always think there's no way that George is ever going to take all twenty grand. No. And but, he might not even take any of it mm -hmm. since the money came in. Because that would be typical of mm -hmm. George. Um, Sam, I have a I feeling... Mean, you know, probably took it a step further and, 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 you know, maybe somehow made provision for George and Mary's retirement, that because, kind of well, thing. Because Sam's throughout the movie, Sam keeps trying to help them. Yeah. And, and he says that if it hadn't been for a couple of critical pieces of information that George gave him, mm -hmm. you know, so he's a loyal friend. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's kind of loud and obnoxious in his own weird way, but he's a good friend. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that this good friend, uh, having understood the nature of George's problem that night and then going to the degree that he was just going to unconditionally give him up to 25000 or $20,000. Yeah, I can't remember what the exact number is. And, and my guess is, is that at that point, Sam's thinking, you know, this guy's never taken a dime for himself and he's caused a whole lot of other people to prosper. We're going to make sure he and his wife are okay. Mm -hmm. And so who knows, they probably set up a George Bailey trust, <laughs> you know, and let it earn interest until George and Mary needed it. That's, 
What's interesting is, is that I, I mentioned that I'm going to share a, the content of a bonus episode here before we finish this one, and we're not near done with this one. But I've speculated about after the story mm-hmm. on a number of occasions, and I went so far, oh, 30 years ago, a little under 30 years ago, I wrote one variation of how I thought George's life progressed. And we're going to hear that on the next episode. All right. So Job is, so had George mediated, (laughs) meditated, no, this word, look at that. No uh, question. Oh yeah, it is mediated, but I think it's supposed to be meditated. Typo, Mr. Vermelier. Okay. No worries. Excellent study, Mr. Vermelier, but this is a typo and I just read it out loud. Uh, He did not mediate, but he did meditate on Jeremiah 29, 11. Or he should have. Or he should have what he might have thought would be different. What does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? This is my favorite, favorite Bible verse. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yeah. Yeah. And every life counts, and there was a plan that God had for George's life for our lives. So let's take a look at the next segment. This is George in the cemetery. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We weren't here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, Broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Wow. Wow. So, George's wish to have never been born creates a nightmare. And and George, you know, you said you wouldn't want to do it because you might be upset by the the vision that you had. And I said it would be interesting to know how you made a difference. Um, But clearly, it's a nightmare for George. There's nothing about his impact on the world. Mm -hmm. No, that's not coming out the way I mean it. It, it. it could be that he is beginning to understand what a great life he had. But I think more than anything, he's beginning to understand what a nightmare the world is when one critical piece has changed, you know, I mean, I I guess, I mean, and, and this is where Capra's genius comes in because he, he came up with this idea. He and Capra invented the character of Potter Mm. and Capra included Potter in the story or told them to make a Potter character because he understood that the way to really, convince people of the good that one person can do and the good that they can leave as a legacy is uh, there's a great potential there but there's also a great potential for evil to be the legacy of one person so one person can leave a legacy of evil and another person can leave a legacy of good and Capra was able to say that's where we that's how this story works because it'll pivot on that 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 understanding right there, and um, so uh, so so how does that speak to the choices people make in their lives? I mean, you know, have how many decisions do we make where we know that we've made a critical decision that will, you know, have an impact on on our future and other people's future. How often does anybody really know that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you know until 
later a lot of times. I think it's your character that really makes the difference. And it's the series of decisions that are made out of your character. Mm -hmm. And so if I were going to spin it, I would say that if there's a lesson to learn from all of this, the lesson is to be a person of good character. Um, And I know exactly how to define this. And and I'm not doing this to impress anybody, but long before... um, I articulated this in a strictly Christian way. I learned a set of rules to live by as a Boy Scout. And I still, no matter how much I want to please my King Jesus, and no matter how much I want people to reflect upon how my good character is a reflection of Christ within me, I'd be really happy if people just knew that I was a good scout because they found me to forever and always be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if I could be known as a person of those 12 characteristics, and then there's a pretty good chance that my life will have made a positive impact on the world around me. I mean, I really believe that. And I'm not crediting Lord Baden-Powell or... Uh, uh, or Sir Baden-Powell, I can't remember now. But anyway, the guy who started Boy Scouts. Um, I'm just saying, I'm not crediting him here. What I'm saying is is that Christian character could be defined by those 12 characteristics and others. But Like the fruits of the Spirit. You know, they're, they're like fruits of the Spirit. They really are. The 12 parts of the Boy Scout law could be like 12 fruits of the Spirit. Um, because a person filled with a good spirit, with the Holy Spirit, will do good works. You know? So, I see you over there doing the math. You're trying to count the named fruits of the Spirit. Nine. Uh, So, you can do nine or twelve, it's up to you. You know? So... Over 200 years ago, Edmund Burke wrote the Thomas Mercer, wrote to Thomas Mercer, this very well-known quote, the only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And it has been quoted over and over and over again because it is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And when you see Pottersville, it's the epitome of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's not like George is the only good person in Bedford Falls. There are lots of wonderful people in Bedford Falls, but apparently without somebody... And I was I was just sitting here thinking, like, with the cemetery scene, I was like, yeah, but Peter Bailey, he stood up for what was right. But Peter Bailey's only son dies in that scenario. Yeah, And maybe he did still stand up for what was right until he died, but he, there was no one to keep fighting the fight because Uncle Billy cared but was so absent-minded. Well, that... so this is another one of my principles. It's like like absolute truths for for successful living, according to Dan. But I think I have others who would support me in this, and I've heard other people say it in different ways. But I just named 12 characteristics that would be excellent virtues for every person of good Christian character to possess. The other thing that most people are not that requires some people to be is a leader. Mm -hmm. Most people are not leaders and none of them really cares to be in a role of leadership, but leadership is critical. Mm-hmm. And and what this suggests is, is that George was a leader in the community, that that people, whether they were directly influenced by him or not, stood their ground because George stood his ground. Mm-hmm. Um, he resisted Potter, so they resisted Potter. Um, you know, he created a sub-community of anti-Potters. Yeah. Because they moved to his neighborhood. He, they... they you know, probably went to church with him and and his family and you know all of that. They just they they associated with people who had escaped from the tyranny of Potter. 
And so there was this sub-community, and George was the leader, even if it wasn't in an overt way. When the crisis hits the community financially, there are two people who come out of it all right, Potter and the ones who stuck with George. Mm -hmm. And it was his leadership and self-sacrifice that saved the day for apparently the whole community. You know, so leadership can't be underrated. Yeah. And leadership is not, I repeat, it is not about being in charge. It's not about barking orders. Leadership is a state of mind and it is something that one reluctantly accepts. And then through a series of courageous moves, gains the trust and respect of those they are leading. Well, and I think that's that's leadership. I think sometimes good leaders don't necessarily know that they're leading. Right. Either they just are they, their character is such that because of the choices they decide to make others follow. Yeah. Um and I think that's more George. I don't think he considers himself a leader. Yeah. But. Yeah, I think George is, you know, because he's not in a leadership role in the same sense yeah. as someone like in my position as a pastor. But there are plenty of pastors who don't go to a church to lead. Mm-hmm. They go to a church to administer the sacraments, preach the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. But I just happen to be at a time in the history of organized religion in America where churches who are not led by somebody will spiral out of control and auger into the ground and churches who are led by somebody need to be led by people with good virtues Mm -hmm. because if they're led by the first person who's willing to take the role, they're liable to be led by people with not so great virtues. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. You can, you can document that. All right, so um, Matthew 25, verses 14 to 26. Yep, it's the parable of the talents. Yep. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more so also the one with two talents gained two more but the man who had received the one talent went off dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money after a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them mm-hmm. the man who had received the five talents brought the other five master he said you entrust me with five talents see i have gained five more his master replied well done good and faithful servant You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed so i was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground see here is what belongs to you his master replied you wicked and lazy servant so you knew that i harvest where i have not sown and gather where i have not scattered seed well then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when i returned it would have received it back with interest Hmm. well this is worthy of a episode in and of itself, mm-hmm. but that's not what we're asked to do here. So when we think about it in terms of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, why do you think the master gives the men different amounts of compensation? Well, I'm sure it had everything to do with what he had already seen them capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm going to go out on a limb here because some folks might find this difficult to accept or or to interpret the way I do. But I I think God does test us, but I don't think he tests us in the way that we most often think of it. Um, I don't think God tests us for frivolous reasons or uh, 
well, the word I've heard used before is capricious, but there's probably a better way to put it. It just, God doesn't do these things without purpose. And this is a good example because Jesus is saying, sometimes the master is going to give you an amount uh, to invest that goes along with who you appear to be in order that he can know who you really are. And it's not that God doesn't know your soul, but it's like you need to know who you are. Um, so, so God is saying, I think I, I think I know you better than you know yourself. After all, I'm the creator, you're the created, but not only that, I'm not sure you think that you know yourself as well as I think you do. And, and so we're going to do a little test here just to help make things clear for everyone involved. And I think that's the gist of the story. Um, so how is it that, uh, this story plays out in the story of George's gift of the miracle of being able to see the world without him in it. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Who's, who's the, who wins because this happened? Well, a lot of people, we can only assume that George went on to do even more good things mm -hmm. and that, that the image of Pottersville drifts further away and the image of Bedford Falls as it's influenced by Bailey's increases, you know, we, we don't even know what became of his sons and well, and I was just thinking his daughters like, because, I mean, and we've talked about it before, but because of his crisis, certain other people that have a potential to be a good influence on Bedford Falls, like Violet, yeah. she has the potential to be a great influence and she chooses to stay because of what happens with George. She could have really so, turned her life around after that. I think not only his, consider his impact, but every person that gathers in that room, the bank inspector guy. Right. Like there are so many people in that room that see, that witness what happens that then have just as much potential as George and talk about the talents right. parable. There's George's investment right there as right. everybody that's in that room willing to do their part to help their town too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a sense of community that grows out of that mm -hmm. and uh that yeah that's powerful you know and and so it starts with george being confronted by the lord with the a test similar to the one that we just read about mm -hmm. and the last scripture reference for this one is um what uh, what what it says in Luke chapter 12 verse 48 what type of return on investment does God expect from the gifts that God gives it says but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows from everyone who has been given much much will be demanded and from the one who has been entrusted with much much more will be asked hmm why do you suppose people are afraid to use their gifts and talents? Because of that verse right there. Fear because, of failure. Well, not just fear of failure, but some, I mean, fear of exhaustion, fear of compassion, fatigue, fear of, I mean, the list goes on and on. If you are... I said compassion fatigue just because I was thinking of, you know, jobs like ours. But if you if you are gifted with something, part of you d might want to hide it just because if if you start sharing it, people are going to keep asking. Well, and, and there's there's the thing, isn't it? it it's because we want to stay in control. Yeah. You know, one of the things that George had to reckon with in his vision of the world without him was the difference he made in the world when a whole lot of things happened that were out of his control. Mm -hmm. And he's been angry for a long time because he wanted some control over his life and over his world. Mm -hmm. And it never happened. Well, and he probably is tired too. And, you know, people do get weary. But I think, you know, as a pastor, I've often asked people to help with things and been told, uh, I'd really rather not, or I'll help, but I don't want to be in charge. And what they're really saying is, is I don't want to be in a situation where I feel obligated and I have to see it through. I want to have the freedom to walk away from it when I feel like it. 
So what they're saying is, is that no matter who asks, and I'm not, I don't mean this the way it might sound to some people, but you know, if you're serious about your faith in God and the faith leader of your faith community comes to you and says, I feel like you could be a help to us with this project, then in a way, it is fair to say that you're rejecting God's invitation to join God in something that God is doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not that presumptuous about myself, but it stands to reason that if I'm asking, I'm an instrument in God's hands. And as a pastor, a particular kind of instrument. And when people say no to me, they're saying no to God to a certain extent, because they're basically saying, if I do this, I'm not going to be in control of my life. And I'm not going to be able to pull out when I feel like it. And I want more control over my life than that, which is sin. Yeah. It really is. But it must be tricky, too, as a lead. Well, I know it's tricky as a leader because of one of my jobs. Because you don't want to, you don't want to weary people by asking the same people for help all the time because you know they're willing. And I agree with what you're saying. I just think that it is an interesting thing to have to figure out how to do. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at the last clip. Um, this is the one that makes everybody cry, I think. <laughs> so you kind of know what's coming. <laughs> telegram good idea ernie a toast <laughs> to my big brother george the richest man in town <laughs> in the book says dear George remember no man is a failure who has friends thanks for the wings love Clarence so what does George finally learn about his life it's pretty okay yeah made more difference than anybody could have imagined especially him mm -hmm. and you know here's here's a fun question what are some of the things that George um, notices and appreciates in a different way as he makes his way back home after he's restored to his wonderful <laughs> life i love when he's he runs by the building and loan and <laughs> well it, it starts with his car right yeah he goes by that old <laughs> jalopy just... of a car and says hey you wonderful car and merry christmas you old building and loan yeah and yeah he just you know and... sees it more for the good it's brought him, I and, guess. And know. it just proves that, that George, still there. <laughs> George is a better man than most of us because George goes up and says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many of us would have left it at that. 
you know, a lot of us would have said, you know, Merry Christmas, you old jerk, you yeah. know, or something far worse. So, so um, uh, basically, I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, uh, there's some quotes from Ecclesiastes, quite a few actually, and uh, Ecclesiastes is like the wisdom book of Solomon, mm-hmm. and and um, he basically he he's teaching us in the verses that that uh, the pursuit of hedonism, you know, self-indulgent, just gluttony and, and, and you know, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of, of sensual self-indulgence. And sensuality, by the way, is a word that we've often, especially in Christian circles, we, we tend to be afraid of that word because it seems to us like it's talking about sex. But it's really talking about the flesh. It's talking about sensuality refers to satisfying the flesh and so a sensual thing is something that's tactile and and real it's flesh and we want to indulge the flesh we want to give our body whatever it craves and uh, so we eat too much we drink too much we make merry all the time you know and Solomon is basically saying you know there's balance in everything that that you know uh, there's nothing wrong with things that give the body pleasure but when we become addicted to them or we become so committed to them that we have no commitment left for anything else, especially God, we suffer the consequences. So here George is in a financial bind, does not have the resources personally to solve the problem. And yet at this moment when all of the good works he has done are being repaid in a literal, sensual tactile way Mm -hmm. his brother says here's to my brother George the richest man in town which is such a profound statement because he's rich because of the relationships he has Mm -hmm. and the legacy of good things that he has done and you know I just think that's incredible Um, he really is the richest man in town and yet Potter has more money than anybody else, but he's alone on Christmas Eve and there's nobody's going to help him with any problems of Mm -hmm. his. But on Christmas Eve across town, a man who would be considered, you know, at best middle class by those standards and has no resources for an emergency uh, is considered richer by far. So Mm -hmm. George found out he truly had a wonderful life. Anything else you want to say about this movie and our study on this last episode? If you've never watched it, well, for starters, you probably shouldn't have listened to this study (laughs) because we spoiled the whole thing, but go watch it. You know, I'd like to encourage you to watch the movie if you have not ever, but if you haven't, my guess is you're going to understand and appreciate this study even so because there are certain things we're describing in this that are transcendent they are about character they're about the ongoing struggle between good and evil they're about making decisions that are more important to to our eternal well-being and the generational well-being of our families and our communities um i've always had this philosophy that that wherever i've served a church um i just hope i left them better than i found them i and i and i think i have Mm -hmm. and i guess it depends on who you ask because some of those churches have been left with uh you know disenabled troublemakers who would probably still tell you that the church is worse off now because Pastor Dan took away their authority over a certain thing. And there will be those people who feel, you know, as though they've suffered because of me. But if I did what I set out to do, then I might have left them in a stronger position than they found themselves in when I got there. And that's all I can hope for. And that's what I think the message of this movie is, is that everything you do makes a difference. So do it as though it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And no matter what your job is, 
no matter what your status in the community is, mm-hmm. whatever you do, do it like it matters because it probably matters a lot more than you think. And I'll close my part by saying it's like that story about the there's a couple of guys walking on the beach and the and the storm surge has thrown hundreds and hundreds starfish. of starfish on the beach and they come across a guy who's throwing one at a time back into the deep and they say you know you can't save them all and what you're doing isn't really making a difference and then the guy says well yeah but it made a difference to that one <laughs> I saved that one, you yeah. know and and that is a really good way to think about your life is no matter what you do it makes a difference to somebody oh school know. counselors love that story Sure they do, <laughs> you know, because because the It's a Wonderful Life is a movie that celebrates life mm-hmm. and it celebrates your life and it celebrates the way your life makes other people's lives better or worse. Mm-hmm. And it gives you an opportunity to to realize that you don't live in a vacuum, Yeah, you know, that that we're all part of community, mm-hmm. that we're really a family. Mm-hmm. So it's good stuff. Well, that is the end of episode five of the It's a Wonderful Life study. Um, There's going to be an episode 5A, which is going to be me reading my story, what George said. Bonus episode. You can take it or leave it. If you like it, I'd love to hear why you like it. And if you don't like it, I'll try to take your abuse if you give it to me. But (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, I wrote it 30 years ago almost, so I mean, I hope you like it, but it's not going to change at this point because it's not published, it's not in print, it just is what it is. So anyway, that's what's coming in the next episode, Um, and I may have it come out a week later than this one because we need a time to get ready for our next study series, which is, I think we're going to do the Doctor Who story study. Oh, well, then I've been getting ready because I've been marathoning it for like a week. Well, a lot of people have. <laughs> have you looked at our study guide a little? I've started to look at okay. it. I'm not deep into it. You but. think, it, you know, so what we have to decide, friends, is whether we think it's doable on this format. Yeah. And I think we can pull it off because we usually do, but... But uh, your homework assignment in preparation for the Doctor Who Bible study podcast is to watch the new season of Doctor Who on BBC America that starts oh. tomorrow. Yeah. January new episode 1st. tomorrow night. I can't wait because they make you wait a really long time between so, seasons. January 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Doctor Who on BBC America. Watch it. And then you'll be that much more informed mm-hmm. when we do this Bible study. And by the way, if you think that's what we're all about, that's not what we're all about. No. We all uh, we're all about Jesus. Yep. We're we're about the true master of the universe, the true time lord. And I love Doctor Who because a lot of times shows that think they have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus have so much to do with Jesus. Oh, we wouldn't even talk out loud on this format about how we're going to look at by a Doctor Who in Bible study. If it wasn't for the fact that we see so many interesting uh, relationships between the story arc of Doctor Who Mm -hmm. and the story of the creator of the universe and his relationship with his creation. So and if you've never if you're if you've never watched Doctor Who, the new season will probably be a great place to start. But I will just plug that if you've never watched it before and you think, I don't know about all this like time travel space nonsense, look up the third season episode called Blink and start there because it is by far one of the best Doctor Who episodes ever and you might not sleep after, but it's very good and it will give you an idea of what the show is about. It's all about the timey-wimely, wibbly-wobbly stuff. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah, so... Thank you for listening to the series. It's a Wonderful Life Bible Study, mm-hmm. all five and one quarter episodes. We really appreciate you, and we would love to hear from you as always. Write us a note uh, in the comments section of your podcaster. Go to the Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. Join if you're not a member. Uh, go to shilohum.org, that's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org, 
and drop us a line. We want to hear from you, and it means a lot to us to know how this is impacting your life, and we hope in a positive way. In the meantime, we just want to wish you a wonderful, happy 2020, and we hope that you will give God praise and glory and thanks for having an entire 2019 because you've had a wonderful life. Bye. Bye.